0: Right, hello, everyone. My name is Tracy Sisco. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm beside your host for the podcast. I am also the executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. Uh, on today with us is a longtime friend, journalism in Chicago, journalist in Chicago, who I've thought most of his career, if not all of it, has been kicking butt and asking questions that others would not ask, Mick Dumkey from ProPublica. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Tracy. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Okay, so let's just jump into this. And I want to talk to you about, at least to start, about journalism broadly in Chicago and crime and justice reporting. So, how would you view, given that we have all these outlets now, and we also, what I would talk about is we have these political outlets, these political operations guised as journalism. So, you're talking, I would talk about City Wire, I think, it, or Chicago Wire, it's called, Crime and Wrigleyville blog to some degree or another. How would you categorize the state of criminal justice reporting in chicago currently
1: i think tracy that it ranges from very good to very bad and you're right i mean just generally speaking we're obviously in an era where uh because of technology things are far more open and uh democratic small d than they used to be which is good people can weigh in in a way that they never could before and uh information is not just controlled by a handful of uh legacy media outlets um on the other hand everybody with a twitter feed thinks they can be or are a journalist and while in principle i'm all for it the more the merrier uh there is no quality control that's left up to uh people you know users of social media and and the audience the general audience out there to make those kinds of decisions and qualifications. And obviously it doesn't happen all the time. And in fairness, most people don't have the time to sift through every single thing they see and do their own fact checking of it. So what you've got is to some degree, a wild west in terms of uh, a flow of information.
0: Okay. So I'm going to get it a heart. I'm going to ask you the question. I'm going to comment a little bit about it after you're done, but does every murder deserve to be in print? either online or in the paper? Does it, every murder deserve to be covered equally, 100%? They all get the 15-column 15 15 column inches?
1: Well, no. Not not all not all incidents that happen, whether they're crime incidents or anything else, um, necessitate the same news coverage. So I wouldn't answer your, your question by saying some murders uh, deserve to be covered more than others because – you know, that gets at up almost a theological issue. I mean, everybody matters. Um, and I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that in terms of all lives matter, Tracy, I'm saying every individual, yep. every individual's life is important. And uh, um, on the other hand, not every incident that happens, including homicides, have the same uh, importance for a broader community. Uh, or have the same context that needs to be reported on the same way. I think pre- premised on your question is this trend that happened several years ago where, uh, I mean, it used to be that not all homicides were covered. And then that changed starting a few years ago. And there was uh, there was in a person in, I think it was in D.C., right, initially, who set wow. out to, to do a project where she said, I'm gonna cover every single murder in DC. And I met her at a a conference at NYU criminal, the John Jay uh, College Mm -hmm. of Criminal Justice has an annual uh, conference for journalists and I met her there. And I actually was very moved and very struck by her project because it was, uh, I thought it was a very, it was an exercise in humanity just to basically say, we are going to treat um, each one of these as worthy of reporting and digging into. Now, her, you know, her objective was to go beyond just simply saying, you know, person X was shot at this intersection at this time and leaving it there. Like she actually was trying to do some reporting to find out what happened and to connect some dots, and thought that that would be a public service to do that. When other people have started to do this in other places around the country, including in Chicago. And then you know the, the daily newspapers eventually picked up on it. Um, it just became like a box score, right? And so we get these box scores, you know, 30 people shot, uh, 10 killed. Here's a rundown of the addresses where it happened. And in most cases, uh, the reporters just simply can't get any information on, on any of these incidents. So I don't know, how much of a value that provides if there's no context for it, if we're not able to provide any information, if we're not able to connect any dots, it's just a string of disturbing information that doesn't help us unspool anything. What, what do you think?
0: No, I agree with you. I also met uh, the woman whose name is Casey who did the Washington DC homicide watch it was called. Right. And um. I brought that to Chicago, the idea to Chicago. I met with her and they she wanted like her and her husband wanted $3,800 a month to lease the software, which was a hacked WordPress site, by the way. So I, I actually brought this idea to the Chicago Reporter and L Kelly and Angela Caputo. And I said, let us handle the data and the tech side and you all do the reporting. Let's go to a foundation and see if we can get um, enough reporters to actually physically go to the courthouses, go and right. follow up. What is actually, um, and that partnership never worked, but I, the way I envisioned it was we don't, one of the problems I have with the violence reporting in Chicago is what is causing these shootings? You know, I talked to Andrew Papa Christos, a professor from Northwestern a few weeks ago on our Facebook Live, and he talked about there's gang involved and gang related, and there's a difference between the two. right. And I think that's dearly missing in all of this is that, you know, the police make up some line that their spokesman gives the media about whether or not it was gang related or whatever, but we don't, the public has no idea. Is this a bunch of, are we, even in the uptick in Chicago, what is actually at the root of this? Is this just interpersonal conflict between gang members? It has nothing to do with, you know, pushing the gang's uh, interests. What's going on here? Because if we don't understand what's going on, we can't treat what's, the simple, we can't treat the underlying causes, right?
1: That's true. That's true. And first of all, their names were Laura and Chris Amico.
0: Okay, yes.
1: Uh, and, and I wanted to do that so we are uh, give them oh, credit for yeah. what they were trying to do in D.C. Um, and you're right. As I recall, uh, Block Club, local news site in Chicago, Block Club, their predecessor, which was DNA Info, in Chicago, they set out to do this as well. and They were trying to peel back some layers and it just got overwhelming. You have to staff this. You really have to, like you're, you were saying you have to do, this is like a really important, complicated full-time job if you're going to do it. And nobody wanted to really, everybody wanted to say they were doing it. Nobody really wanted to devote resources
0: doing it. Right. Your
1: and point it, it, about game related is, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tracy. Go ahead. I
0: was just saying. say, no, it's really hard. It would really, it's you'd really, really have hard. to staff up because you'd have to be in those communities almost yes. full time to get the trust and follow what's going on and learn from the families, what they've heard from the police, what was actually going on in the corners, get the sources. That's not easy. And that's not something you can parachute in. You can parachute in and get the quote from the family saying, oh my God, my son was just turning his life around. And I'm not Demeaning that I feel I feel every murder is bad and we should want no one to die. But that kind of like soundbite crime yeah. reporting is I don't think is helping anyone and it's it not takes helping a lot.
1: Anyone. It's not informing the public. Um, and your point about the the, the sort of gang related uh, and the other tags. I mean, there's a couple layers to this. You and I both know there historically there has been um, you know widespread involvement in gangs in Chicago. There's no denying that. However, I think at this point in history, from what I understand, it's pretty complicated. So there's people who are affiliated with street organizations simply because of the block they grew up on, ranging to people who are running uh, you know, criminal trafficking organizations that uh, are under the rubric of one of the old time gangs. And there's every almost everything in between. So you're right, when something happens and the police say it's gang related, does that mean you know, it's like an old uh, blues song where somebody shot somebody over his woman? Or is it like a fight over a street corner that is valuable for uh, you know, drug sales? Or is it a Facebook slight? I mean, we don't know, it doesn't add any uh, information. But I'll tell you why it's done, in my opinion, is because, and not just my opinion, from, from years of reporting, Is because it is meant to assure a certain segment of the population in Chicago that don't worry, this isn't random. We know who the people are who are doing this. And even though it looks terrible and it is terrible and it seems out of control, we actually have a handle on this. We know it's the gangs and the gangs are killing each other. And that's bad. We don't like it, but that's what gangs do. It's sort of a shorthand way of trying to basically tell people, and let's be blunt. A lot of white people on the north side, but not just them. I think a lot of working class and middle class people in African American neighborhoods as well. It's it's trying to reassure them that look, um, this is not something that it necessarily involves you. These are people who are involved in a street life and they're killing each other, and you. It's not something that ultimately you should worry about very much. Um, there's so many layers of half truths and and lies uh, in the way this is presented, but I think that it's essentially like a PR trick that the Chicago police and in in other cities, police in other cities as well, have been using for a long time.
0: Okay. I want to turn. I agree with everything you just said. It is a shorthand and it's a way to get white people to tune out. We don't care about the victims. We don't care about the offenders there. Don't worry about it. They're bad people. They kind of deserve this, but I'm going to switch to news judgment a little bit and get your take on this. Back in 2013, we released a study that looked at a year of violence against women coverage, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, in the Tribune Sun Times, both in the paper and on, online. And basically, what we found let's just take for sexual assault, of the 205 stories the papers did collectively, 197 were on stranger assaults during that 12 months. And then 38 of those stories, of the 205, were on one incident. Where you'll probably remember, it, where a girl from like Highland Park went to the Congress Theater, couldn't get in, and then got a, her friends went in. She got assaulted by she was white, and she got they got she got assaulted by multiple young black males. So that that story in its, of itself had thirty eight articles between the two. And when we talked to some reporters from the Tribune uh, before we released, men and women, they basically said there's nothing wrong with our spot news coverage, and you can't judge it and i was like wait a minute if i look at a year that should help us look at and analyze a little bit and get insight into the news judgment that's going on and i always try to find the larger solution rather than always blaming just the person on the street right so let's get let's not look at the individual reporters let's look at the editors who are sending them out to do these stories correct right what's going on when those two papers are covering sexual assault uh, 90-10 stranger-to-acquaintance assaults when that's exactly opposite of how it's happening in society. What's driving that? Isn't there news judgment going on there?
1: I think it's complicated. And first of all, I would like to say that what you just described about um, analyzing uh, the individual reporters versus analyzing news coverage and the people making decisions and assigning those stories to the reporters – Uh, I think there's at least a few of us who have tried to do that with our coverage of criminal justice and the police department, where we, uh, I I in particular, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be stories about accountability. Of course, there should be. But I myself have never wanted to do stories about officers A, B, or C screwing up, um, what's what are the systems in place what is the job that they are assigned to do when they're sent out there Mm -hmm. that may seem a little bit tangential to your question but i think it's actually actually related because this is what we do with coverage generally we go for the easy quick story we look for the fall guy or the fall girl in in so Mm -hmm. many ways and uh i think it's a real mistake um but analyzing systems is complicated and it's a lot harder as you found with your study, Tracy. And I remember that because you spent a lot of time on it. I remember you, uh, uh, I think you even contacted me at one point in time. How do I get a hold of so-and-so at, at, you know, maybe it was at one of the papers uh, where I was working at the time or whatever. Like you spent a lot of time trying to capture the voices and get the insights of people who were involved in this and not just, the, you know the the rookie reporter sent out to go cover this thing and, and come back in an hour with a story. Um, I think that I think in general we need all kinds of coverage. I think that uh, it, breaking news is important. I've never particularly felt drawn to it. It's not a forte of mine, but people do want to know what's going on. We're all stuck to these these things all the time, yep. you know, and and we want to be informed, but. The theme of our conversation so far has been, how informed are you by a story that's not really reported other than one line of information? Uh, Versus, you know, if it's not an emergency situation for all your audience out there, let's do a little work. Let's find out what actually went on. And I seem to recall the point of your study, which I don't think you've spelled out explicitly in this conversation, but the point of your study was that the kinds of coverage did not in any way measure or represent like the extent or the type of sexual assault that was actually happening out there which is a serious problem like this wasn't just like you know you, you, you screwed up your coverage this week it was more like sexual assault is this pervasive problem it mostly happens among people maybe who are acquainted with one another there are repeat offenders and the kind of coverage the kind of sensational coverage that ends up uh, in you know, the newspapers on television does not reflect the problem as a whole. Anyone who's been hurt or assaulted, of course, it's horrible. We're not saying that, but we're just saying if you want to really look at this problem. You have to look at it. You can't just go for the quick and easy story that's going to get clicks.
0: Yeah. And for me, you know, I think a little bit of this is lost, especially on the upper echelon. Like your coverage is going to dictate how people view their world and their environment and their community, right? So you're basically showing half the population, (laughs) right, or 51% to some extent or another in the old demographic ways of defining things um, that this is what they have to worry about, right? Is that, you know, and let's say it's Chicago, right? It is a black man jumping out of the bushes, attacking a white woman, regardless of the fact that almost never happens. That's what gets played up. So that's what they're going to protect themselves from rather than realizing, especially for 20-something women, it's the guy in the bar feeding them drinks that is really the likely person who's going to offend them. Um, and that's just not seen and it's not communicated. And that's a serious problem because um, that's it, it affects how people live their daily lives. It isn't just reporting on some stupid um, – I don't know, some individual act. I mean, it, this stuff adds up. And I tried to be fair. I didn't go after any individual reporters. We never named a reporter. And I looked at a year of coverage, But because I, I think over time you can aggregate that and look at the bigger trends.
1: Yeah, I, right. thought was, I thought it was important. It was an important
0: discussion. All right, well, thank you. Um, we have a report hopefully coming out this fall and th- analyzing three years of coverage, 17, 18, and 19. We'll see if things will change. This time we're, we're including the TV stations. So that should be an interesting comparison. Um, okay. Right off the bat, what percentage of the stats and the data and the analysis that any criminal justice agency in Chicago that operates releases, how much of that do you believe first blush when you get it pops up in your email?
1: Well, all right. What In what context are you talking about like, um, a news release of some kind or are you talking about like I have submitted a freedom of information open records request and what I get back how much of that like so so what is the context you're
0: asking I'm going to say in a press release like uh you get the monthly crime stats press release or you get in this case um we're going to talk about in a couple minutes David Brown the CPD versus um Kim Fox, in what's going on with um related to the looters or the protesters right? Or gun crime people. So how much of that, from any of the players, do you, when you get it, do you believe? Well, I usually believe it, but I'm
1: trained, I mean, this is my job. I'm trained to read it with uh, skepticism um, from, in the sense that I know that the context is usually (laughs) missing. I know that there's a message being delivered to me um, and that there's probably more to the story. So I, uh, to be quite honest, I usually have my BS detector on when I'm reading (laughs) anything from a public agency, whether it's about the criminal justice system or otherwise. Uh, in the case of like crime statistics specifically, man, you, you and I both know, and probably most people who are following this, that you can slice and dice stuff to make it look however you want to look. I, in particular, at this point, am very um, sensitized to what I consider sort of blip crime reports, whether they're good or bad. And so when I see things like, you know, this month versus the same month last year, or uh, things that are very short term seeming crime trend, I would give you an example. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was just in in Chicago a week or week and a half ago, basically claiming that um, his, uh, this program Operation Legend, in which they've, sent a number of additional federal agents to Chicago and other cities that have had a spike in gun violence. He basically was claiming credit for reduced crime rates. And, you know, these new agents have only been here for about 6 weeks. So first of all, you know, my response to that is, well, yeah, the numbers overall do appear to be down. Let's all be glad that they're anytime they're going down, we we should all be glad. On the other hand, Tracy, it's 6 weeks. That's a blip in time. That's not enough to statistically say anything with any kind of certainty. And it's certainly not enough to say it's because of one particular uh, solution or another. Um, also, as, as many people noted after that press conference, he did that after a weekend where Chicago had, you know, literally dozens of people had been shot. So it's kind of like the fact that it maybe it was better in, here in August than it was in a historically bad month in July is good, but that's really not something to brag about when you're looking at the big picture. So, again, to answer your question, I always look for the context. I always try to figure out what are they trying to tell me and does that hold up to scrutiny rather than the specific numbers they're throwing out? there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I um, When I get on and I'm on some of the press lists now, I just kind of laugh, right? And it's like, oh, if I only had the time. Give me a staff and I can, um, you know, slice and dice them to show where the where the con is going on. It cracks me up. Like CPD has bragged even over the last seven eight months of like this month, overall violence is down or overall crime is down. It's like man, like that, like like to me that should kind of once in a while that should be on the front page. Like listen, this is just kind of a joke. But yeah, it's continue. Yeah, I continued. mean, listen. If if overall crime
1: isn't down, we're really in trouble because for most of the period most of the year people were inside i mean so right. <laughs> you know uh regular uh theft for instance is going to be down i mean you would think that car thefts uh you know i don't know what what crime categories they were including that and what they were but i'm just saying off the top there was reduced activity for a long time because people just weren't out and about and then all of a sudden they were out and they were killing each other i mean that's the sad truth of what has happened in 2020
0: It is. And it's and I think people need to realize and I keep saying it every podcast that covers crime. Violence is up in multiple cities. Gun violence is up in multiple cities. Don't think this is like Chicago has a persistent issue that they need to deal with. But this isn't this this spike or increase, whatever you want to call it. It's not just Chicago. It has something to do with the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen, the mass unemployment and yes. the mass destabilization stabilization and the health issues. Like come on, it's in multiple cities. Like I feel. I it's
1: going, yeah, it's going on in New York, which, you know, everyone has celebrated for the last 10 years for yep. its historic drop in crime. And so you're right. There are a few places that have been immune to this trend um, this year. And so that's a, a you know, while we always should be holding public officials accountable as well as journalists as we were just saying uh, that should make us cast our net a bit broader right instead of pointing at individual a or B in in one particular city like the one you know where, where I live and
0: work okay let's uh, let's switch over to Fox Kim Fox first uh, former judge of one of
1: those in- one of those individuals who gets blamed uh, a lot for yes. things going on here. Yes.
0: Yes. And, uh, judge for against, uh, former judge, Pat O'Brien. Um, first of all, I want to get your take. How do you, how do you make sense of what happened in the Smollett case? I right? can't make sense of
1: it. Yeah. And, and first of all, everybody knows we're talking about the state's attorney, right? Cook County's uh, Kim Fox. Yes. Um, and uh, she was elected as a reformer four years ago, up for re-election, and she's really been haunted for what the last year and a half, um, or has it been longer? It seems like it's been going on my whole adult life at this point. Uh, the Jesse Smollett case, uh, which, um, in a nutshell, this actor who was in town uh, filming claimed that he was the victim of a hate crime and that a noose was put around his neck one night, and then subsequently. Uh, authorities accused him of staging the whole thing and charged him with filing a false, essentially filing a false report. Uh, And so much has has trickled out along the way, uh, Tracy. I think the bottom line is that um, it was clear that some high-powered acquaintances of Kim Fox's contacted her about the case early on. He recused herself. Did she recuse herself fully? When exactly did she do that? The charges ended up being dropped against uh, Jesse Smollett, um, and uh, he basically didn't have to admit any kind of responsibility for this incident. So not only uh, did he not serve any time, uh, but he, uh, which some people were calling for, others of us think that would have been absurd. But he didn't. Ha- he didn't uh, be held. He wasn't held to account in any way. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, subsequently, there was a special prosecutor assigned to look into the case. Uh, there's just, ri- ri- there's still ripples of this politically going on all around town. So I'll stop right here for a moment. But the special prosecutor found that Kim Fox in her office did not do anything that was criminally wrong, but said there were uh, substantial abuses of discretion is the way that he put it. Basically that they had uh, made some bad decisions in the way they handled the case. And so now she's in, up for re-election. It's a heavily democratic area, obviously. Only two Republicans have been elected state's attorney in the last 60 years. So I still think it uh, would be very unlikely that she will be upset, but it's a strange year. And her, uh, her opponent, whether you like him or not, he does, uh, you know, he has credentials, so he's not someone you can just brush aside as, as a merely a warm body. So it's, it's a very interesting scenario for Kim.
0: I agree. I have dealt with her people. I will say, I thought the case was bungled top to bottom. Um, especially by her people, she should have never taken those calls in my opinion. Um, cause you don't ever know where a case is going to go. And, um, I don't, like you, I don't think imprisoning him made sense for what he did. I think the shame and ridicule and losing his job on the show and everything was enough punishment. But, um, so I'm not worried about, but I, I think that it was a political mistake to not have him take some kind of responsibility, right? right. To some get,
1: sort of plea on the record, you know, would have been appropriate. I, I, and I think taking a step back from the details of the case, I agree with you. It's hard to argue the case was handled well. It was not. Kim doesn't even argue that it was handled well. Um, he admits that she bungled it. However, I, uh, you know, I interviewed her. I, um, I, many others have interviewed her. I just don't think that we all fully understand exactly what all happened. So I think that um, both as a public official who needs the trust of uh, who she needs the trust of the public, particularly in the with the tough job that she has, and as a Political figure running for re-election. I think that she really made a big mistake by not stepping forward early or even today and just explaining the whole case from start to finish, taking everybody's questions, answering them. Just have a press conference, air the whole thing out. Why they won't do that, I just find um, deeply frustrating. And know a lot of people who support her reform agenda who are also frustrated and feel that. Uh, her bungling of this one case, there's thousands of cases that her office has handled. This is one case. So it's totally been been blown out of proportion, Um, but yet it potentially imperils the whole reform agenda because it hasn't had enough uh, sunlight on it. So I, you know, I I'm, I'm tired of the case, Tracy, (laughs) but it's become important because it's, it's come to symbolize people's trust in, this uh office holder and her office and um i agree that it's like totally out of proportion but i also agree that like she needs to do more to deal with it and she just botched it
0: yeah and my feeling is it just it shows not so much corruption as incompetence right that's that's my problem and bad judgment, some, yeah and bad judgment right the whole thing top to bottom I think the outcome of him not going to prison was right, but everything between the occurrence and that was bungled, even not making him accept Blaine, uh, making him agree to not go in front of the cameras and claim complete innocence um, was a big mistake. Okay, we're going to turn to a piece you wrote in ProPublica, and I'm going to read it here. As Trump calls for law and order, can Chicago's top prosecutor beat the charge that she's soft on crime? And this goes to my earlier question. There's the anti-reform movement, um, and this goes to CWB Chicago and Chicago City Wire, Second City Cop blog, and the other of that ilk. They love exposing any single bad incident, right? Mm -hmm. So if they, if she, someone that got out on bond reform, they committed a crime again while he he or she was waiting. I, I feel to some degree the media hasn't pushed back hard enough on the fact we, we seem to have gotten lost. What's gotten lost in the discussion is what is bail for, right? What is yeah. it for, right? Like we have a, it's a system that was basically created to make sure people show up for court, right? Right. And, right. and rare occasion of when someone is an obvious imminent threat, then maybe they shouldn't get bail. The bail would be so high that they can't bail themselves out because they're an imminent threat to the life and safety of people and certain people that you can, you can document that. Um, but to some degree, I feel like this whole, all this reform and the anti-reform movement, what's gotten lost is this discussion of what bail is for.
1: I think there are so many things caught up in this one discussion. And the point of my piece, is, I was saying to you um, before we officially started taping, uh, my point of the piece was looking at this climate of law and order that uh, President Trump, among others, has (laughs) clamored for. In a democratic city, you don't hear people using that same language, but you hear other coded language, which amounts to the same thing. And around here, it is my argument that Kim Fox has basically become a convenient symbol for a lot of politicians, Republican and Democrat, who use her to uh, basically tell, they basically play off people's fears of crime and they use Kim Fox as their victim. They basically say she's the one to blame. They blame her. So blaming Kim Fox for crime, blaming Kim Fox for letting people out of jail in Chicago is the equivalent of Donald Trump calling for law and order during his reelection campaign. And, you know, Chicago, everything, not so far below the surface, Tracy, is racial in Chicago. And I'm only exaggerating slightly when I say everything, but here the optics are obvious. Kim Fox, an African-American woman who has, uh, as we've been talking, discussing a campaign four years ago as a reformer, And not that her record is above reproach, you and I just got done criticizing her, but she has followed through on a lot of things she promised to do during her campaign four years ago. I think, will you like her or not? You have to acknowledge that she said she was gonna do a lot of the things she has done. However, the criticism of her, the legitimate criticism of her, the discussion about are her policies good or bad, effective or otherwise, totally legitimate. But that's all mixed in with, Confusion about what her office does and doesn't do. And a lot of the confusion is purposely uh, put out there by people who are just using her for their own political benefit. So that brings us up to the whole issue of bail and bond. Um, People go to prison if they're sentenced to prison during, you know, at the conclusion of a trial. They're found guilty or they plead guilty, a judge, a jury sentences them to serve time in prison. Jail is where people sit if they are deemed to be a threat to the public before they go on trial. And so the notion that uh, Cook County Jail should just be full of people who are suspected of of going on, that Cook County Jail is the way that we, where everybody goes once they're arrested for a crime is false. That is a decision, a complicated decision-making process. A judge ultimately decides Who is going to go to jail before their trial starts? And who are we okay with letting out until their trial starts? And you said a few minutes ago, Tracy, you're right. Initially, this was based on um, several things. One is potential threat to the public. Okay, if there is evidence that someone should be charged with a homicide, I personally sitting here, Mick Dunkey in 2020, I don't know why they would be out on the street. If there's evidence that you think They should be enough evidence to charge them with killing someone. In my opinion, they should be sitting in jail even before they go to trial. However, there's all sorts of other crimes that don't involve homicide. So where do you draw the line? And that's really what the issue is. If someone is caught shoplifting, should they be sitting in jail before they go on trial? They haven't been found guilty yet. Should they be sitting in jail? There's a lot of people who say, Kim Fox is responsible for letting all kinds of shoplifters off the hook. They should all be in jail. As a result, she's responsible for the looting that's happened in Chicago. To me, those are several huge logical (laughs) leaps, but that's part of the argument that's going on out there. So people don't understand the bail and bond system. They also don't understand electronic monitoring, which is um, often similar or different. There are some people who can be put on an electronic ankle, what they call an ankle bracelet, you go free pending trial. Um, some people can even be sentenced on an electronic bracelet. Instead of sitting behind bars to serve out a sentence, you could be at home on electronic monitoring. Kim Fox prosecutors, they can recommend whether someone has bail or bond or even goes on electronic monitoring, they do not make that decision. So. You can you cannot like Kim Fox, you can criticize her policies, but she is not the one who decides, and neither are her employees the ones who decide whether someone is free on bail pending trial. That's not their job, but yet she's blamed for all of it.
0: Right. And this is and part of this is we just don't have access to the data, like the raw data from the courts. Like there's historical context to this you can't just say, well, this guy got out. I mean, there have been guys that have been arrested on gun possession for time and a memorial in Chicago who judges have let out on little bail or no bail, I bonds forever. This is nothing new. It's new. I think partially because there's a black prosecutor, partially because she's supposedly progressive and, um, her enemies and political enemies are coming at her heart. And I think there's some scapegoating on, going on by our mayor and our police superintendent. Them, I think they tried to make the connection to um, the people that originally were arrested as part of the protests and part of the looting that happened. Um, and that somehow their her failure to keep these people inside and keep them and get them convicted in the short period of time is why we had repeats of the looting. And um, they, on top, they, of all people, know that's untrue. So that, to me, is a big problem. This isn't some yes. political operation that's um, faking journalism and, and um, leveling horrific, untrue allegations that they may not even be smart enough to know are untrue, right? But Loy-Foot, Mayor Layfoot and Brown both know a lot of their allegations are just flat out. absolutely and they're joined
1: by members of the city council they're joined by other political figures and other people have just repeated these untruths and i just i think it is um fear-mongering based in race another thing that's very important and difficult for us to acknowledge but it's very important look most people who get locked up are coming out there are very few people who are sentenced to life those are like the most egregious murder cases you know Everybody else, for the most part, is coming out at some point in time. The question is how long should they serve and what is the point of their time being locked up if they are locked up? Is this a punitive measure or we try to rehabilitate people? These get into much broader questions, but um, when they're sitting in jail, I think that, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not weighing in on one specific policy or another, I'm just saying, Let's first of all let's clear up what who's actually responsible for what. Yep. Um, Judge Evans, who's the chief judge. I remember having him and interviewing him several years ago. When at that point in time, judges hardly let anybody out on bail, or they they posted very high bonds. And so I literally sat in bond court one day and watched a guy who was obviously uh, not all there, probably homeless or semi homeless, and uh, he. Had been sitting in jail already for a couple days by that point and he was going back to jail after shoplifting a pair of socks okay it was probably he was a repeat shoplifter so it wasn't just the first time he'd done this but this was the decisive event that was keeping him locked up there was nothing good done for the public by him being locked up i guess if you're the merchant whose socks got stolen, you could say, well, there was something good done for them because he didn't go back and steal more socks, but it didn't solve the problem fundamentally in any way. There were so many cases like this, Tracy, at that time, judges then were very reluctant of, uh, as judge Evans said to me, quite candidly, you know, the Willie Horton case, there's always going to be a case. Judges let somebody out too soon. The media is going to jump on it. And this, this anecdote, however horrible it may be, people may have been hurt as a result of it, but you're gonna use this as the anecdote for the whole. You're gonna use this instead of analysis of what's actually going on. So they were, in in the last five or six years, things have started to swing the other way where judges took so many hits for locking up people who didn't necessarily need to be there and needed other kinds of help um, instead of just sitting in jail then now they started to go the other way. And now we're seeing all this barrage of criticism. They're letting too many people out. I have yet to see a really good, um, a really good study of what's going on. Like you're talking about, you almost need to do a longitudinal study. The stuff I've seen is for six months, nine months, a year. That's too small of a sample size. Uh, Or it's even shorter where you have the police department feeding anecdotal stuff to various reporters and say we found 20 cases of people who committed crimes when they were out on bond and it's like well how many cases did you look at that time there were <laughs> thousands and you found 20 actually i would argue that's successful
0: right and you have no right nationwide so I mean, statistically that's a great number reoffending rates like 70 percent out of prison exactly right and that's what is question. what I is two percent
1: it's, it's horrible for anyone who's been a victim of any Correct. kind of crime. I'm certainly not saying it's okay for people to be victims of crime. It's horrible. We need to do everything we can to stop them. But let's be realistic. You simply cannot lock up everybody for everything. You can't. You don't have the resources for it, and it doesn't solve problems.
0: Right. It doesn't help the community. All right. Mick, thank you so much for jumping on with us. I really appreciate it. We'll have you back again to talk because this this uh, this talk was great. and I always loved having our lunches. Uh, Someday we'll have to resume that when we get past whatever this this new normal is. Yeah, when we
1: can actually have lunch together
0: again, uh, we'll do it. Yeah. All right, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tracy. Talk to you soon.